what country is he from originally? Gil, he's Norwegian originally. Ah. But he um he um, he's lived in uh the US pretty much all of his life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're familiar with Gil and getting a sense perhaps of just how broad and vast these teachings are on so many different levels, you know, just in terms of the meditation, but then all of the underpinnings that uh, guide the meditation practice also. And I've been reflecting on this recently because whenever I have to write a talk about the teachings, which are sometimes referred to as the Dharma or the truth, it seems to be an occupational hazard of being a teacher, a Dharma teacher, that um, it's a challenge to keep talks simple and direct and concise because as soon as you touch into one area, it just starts opening out. And before you know it, you've got something bigger than Ben-Hur. And here we are, you know, trying to keep it manageable and digestible. So it's sort of like fractal geometry. It doesn't matter wherever you start, the whole of the path starts to open out. So I like to try and find ways of both giving an overview, a sort of a framework that helps to um, get us oriented in a way. And that's what I thought I'd like to do tonight, is talk a little bit about this uh, framework known as the Two Wings to Awakening being wisdom and compassion. An awakening here is the goal that all of these teachings are pointing to. So in the Pali language that these teachings were originally transmitted in, the word is nibbana, in Sanskrit nirvana, also means awakening, liberation or enlightenment in English. And as a very quick working definition uh, this all of these teachings are pointing to being able to live our lives with greater ease with greater happiness ease peace freedom this is what nibbana is referring to so this two wings to awakening you get with an image of the two wings that we need both wings to be equally well developed if we're metaphorically going to fly And so it can be helpful from time to time because I think we've all had the experience of being off balance in one way or another. We can use this template of wisdom and compassion to get a sense of are we putting too much emphasis on one wing at the expense of the other. So the wisdom wing first. uh, Wisdom in this context is the ability to see clearly to understand the truth of how things are, of how we are, of how life is, so that um, this understanding can lead to transformation. And this is a bit different from what wisdom usually means in mainstream society, where it's often associated with a sort of intellectual knowledge, collecting facts and uh, being able to understand complex theories or perhaps being able to debate sophisticated philosophical arguments, all of which are useful, but in the in Buddhist terms, they don't necessarily lead to transformative understanding, the kind of understanding that does lead to happiness and freedom. 
So the practice uh, that we're doing here of mindfulness is all done in the service of understanding um, the everyday material of our lives. You could say it's about getting to know our experience very directly and immediately and as non-conceptually as possible. So the insight, the wisdom that we're um, training in is a non-conceptual understanding. It's an intuitive and embodied kind of wisdom. So we're trying to let go of our concepts, our beliefs, our views and opinions about our experience and be with it as directly and immediately as possible so that these deeper insights can arise. So that's an overview of the wisdom wing. The compassion wing is, uh, is the capacity really to turn towards what's difficult in our lives, what's painful, stressful, challenging, unsatisfactory. These are all aspects of dukkha, which is key to the Buddha's teachings. Dukkha is the various degrees of suffering that we inevitably encounter in our lives. Compassion is the ability to meet that dukkha, to face into it, rather than our usual habit of disconnecting, avoiding, denying, and so on. So the Pali word that's usually translated as compassion is karuna. And this word compassion in English means feeling with, and sometimes referred to as the capacity of the heart to vibrate in response to another's pain or to our own pain. But I just want to highlight that um, in the Buddhist teachings, this compassion is the wish for the other to be freed from suffering. And it's this orientation towards the freedom from suffering that protects compassion from being about wallowing in misery. It's slightly different from empathy, because as I think we all know, we can easily experience what's known as empathy burnout, when if we're just with suffering and really taking it on and feeling it as if it was our own, most of us at some point are going to get sort of bogged down by that. But in the Buddhist teachings, compassion is the ability to simultaneously hold and be with that pain and orient to the possibility of freedom from it. And I think that's partly why, you know, in the neuroscience studies they've done of highly realized Tibetan monks, the apparently the neuroscience people were surprised to find that when these monks were shown distressing images that had caused pretty difficult reactions in ordinary people, they found that the monks' compassion lit up, but so did the pleasure centers of their brains. And partly that might be because when we really orient towards compassion, we're as much orienting towards the wish for relief from it, and there can be a almost a kind of happiness alongside that suffering. So these two, wisdom and compassion, need to be in balance. And yet, I know from my own experience, when I've at times got caught in challenging aspects of the practice, when I've used this template, I've seen how I've got out of balance in some ways. And I think perhaps because we're in the insight tradition, 
we tend to generally put more emphasis on the wisdom wing than the compassion wing. (coughs) And as we start to develop more insights, at first these insights generally are on more of the psychological level. So we start to see clearly some of our default habits or our unconscious patterns and our, um, our ways that we tend to react to things. And at this stage in the practice, what gets revealed to us are all our so-called, quote, defilements, to use traditional language. And it can feel like all of our challenges, all of our neuroses are revealed to us in extra high definition. (laughs) And it can be pretty demoralizing. There's an old joke about this that says self-knowledge is rarely good news. And we can get a sense of that in the early stages of the practice. And if we don't have enough compassion to be able to, you know, take in this information, then it can be pretty challenging. So we start with these more psychological understandings. And then as the insights deepen, we start to see more clearly into the truth of the three universal characteristics of experience. And all of our insight practice is really pointing to see the truth that everything changes. To see the truth that because everything changes, there isn't any way that we can get lasting, permanent, stable happiness from anything out there. And we also see the truth that there is no fixed, solid, permanent sense of me an identity that's enduring over time that all of this is happening to. So as the insights deepen, they start to challenge our usual orientations and beliefs and understanding about how the world is and how and who we are in relation to it. And again, this can be quite challenging at times to have those beliefs challenged in that way. So again, we often need to really strengthen the compassion wing so that we have the flexibility, the resilience of heart and mind to navigate those times of unsettledness. On the other hand, there are times too when the compassion wing might get ahead of the wisdom wing. So when we really start to connect with the truth of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness, of pain and grief and uh, distress, there are times when we might fall into a sense of being overwhelmed. And especially these days, because thanks to modern technology, we have all the misery of the world being channeled very directly into our living rooms and into our devices. So we're just exposed to a much wider range of suffering than we would have been perhaps in earlier times. And that's on top of the suffering in our families, our communities, or in ourselves. So it can be a lot to deal with. And at those times, we might need to consciously reorient to the wisdom wing and remember the truth of impermanence. Bleak as it is right now, this too shall pass, this too will change. We might need to remember the truth of um, unsatisfactoriness, that if we're looking to fix everything out there, 
for our happiness, we're going to be challenged. Instead, if we can change our inner relationship to it, then we have a better chance of being happy independent of the circumstances of our lives. So compassion, then, is this willingness to turn towards suffering, to meet it with kindness, and where possible, to help it to release. This, however, is not the way most of us relate to suffering, unless we've had some kind of training. So what's the usual response? Resistance. Resistance. Get it away from me. Ignore it, deny it, repress it, and so on. Try and fix it. Try and fix it, yeah, which is another way of getting rid of it. So this invitation to turn towards suffering might at first seem counterintuitive. And we easily think, well, this isn't what I signed up for. I thought this path was supposed to get me out of suffering, not kind of rub my nose in it. But one of the reasons that we want to train in meeting suffering is that, as I'm sure you all know, every human life has aspects that are challenging. And so the more we can orient towards dealing with perhaps the smaller challenges now, the more we sort of strengthen that compassion muscle for those times when we might have to meet bigger challenges. In Buddhist terms, challenges such as old age, illness, death are inevitable. So this invitation to orient towards compassion is in some ways preparing us for the bigger challenges that eventually all we're all going to have to face. So one analogy that I sometimes use is this invitation to turn towards suffering is a bit like when you're swimming in the sea and one of those big waves starts coming. You know, usually our instinct is to sort of turn and either try to run if we can touch the bottom or outswim the wave. But usually if we do that, we end up getting slammed. If, on the other hand, we have enough presence of mind to turn towards the wave and to dive just before it hits us, it's turbulent for a while, but we usually come out the other side in reasonable shape. So in some ways, compassion is that willingness to turn towards and to face into these challenges. And it's a training. So we're fortunate that there are a whole set of other types of meditation that very directly cultivate this quality of compassion. And these four meditations are known as the Brahma-Vihara practices, starting with metta or goodwill, kindness. I'm not sure, have you done any of that kind of practice before? A bit. Developing kindness, and how about you, Burton? No. So there, these are sort of parallel types of meditation that um, you train in by reciting phrases that silently offering kindness to yourself and then to different categories of people. Metta or kindness is the first set of trainings and then compassion is the second set. And then there's also appreciative joy and equanimity. So these are four heart qualities that we can um, strengthen through specific forms of meditation practice. And metta is the first one. Metta is kindness, goodwill or friendliness. 
because it's really the foundation that compassion and joy and equanimity grow out of. So one uh, 14th century Tibetan teacher says, out of the soil of friendliness or metta grows the beautiful bloom of compassion, karuna. Watered with tears of joy or mudita under the cool shade of the tree of equanimity, upeka. So that just gives you a sense of how these four qualities relate to each other. And although he talks about the beautiful bloom of compassion, and I think most of us here have some sense of appreciation for that, if you think in terms of mainstream society, compassion is not a quality that's generally highly valued. If we look at the state of the world right now, we might even see that, to me it feels at times like we're in the midst of an epidemic of non-compassion. So perhaps because of mainstream society's tendency towards idealism and perfectionism and competitiveness, for many people just the idea of cultivating compassion can be quite threatening. So when we are invited to turn in this direction and try to cultivate this quality, what we often come into, into contact with, are the obstacles to compassion, things that get in the way. So I can say, even for myself, I think I may have shared this story before, but uh, the very first retreat, insight retreat I did in Thailand was uh, really changed my life. I was very inspired by these. It was two Western teachers who were teaching. And I was so inspired that I decided to go back to that same center three months later and sit another retreat with them. And on the second retreat three months later, they had this whole new approach that really emphasized compassion. And I was blown away. I just felt like I'd been hit over the head by a sledgehammer and something just cracked open and I was really inspired and so when the retreat ended I went to them and thanked them for this radical new direction of their teachings and they said it was the same as last time (laughs) and these particular teachers that was literally true they taught word for word on every single retreat they had a stock set of talks that they knew off by heart and they read them or they spoke them out loud And even when they told me that, I totally didn't believe them. And I had to go and get the book of their talks and show it to me to prove that it had been the same retreat. And for me, what I realized was it was like the first time, it was as if my heart and mind just didn't even have the receptors to hear the word compassion. It just went right over my head. But something shifted. So that by the time I went back three months later, I was able to take this in and really have it have a pretty serious impact on me that, as I say, changed my life. So just by way of encouragement for any of you who might feel that compassion is a struggle, this is something that we can train in and that does develop with practice. And as I said earlier, you know, one of the big obstacles to um, experiencing compassion is fear. We are hardwired to 
avoid what's unpleasant, painful, and potentially life-threatening. So it's not surprising that we would have a deep and instinctual fear of moving towards difficulty instead of away from it. And there is a caveat here. This is why we have two wings to awakening, because we need the wisdom piece. There are times when it's not wise or skillful to move towards fear, so uh, towards pain, sorry. There's a wise fear, so we need to have discernment to know when is this something, an edge that I can stretch, and when is it actually wise caution that's holding me back. So we want to notice, um, we want to pay attention through wisdom, practicing with trial and error, we can learn to distinguish between genuine compassion and what's sometimes called foolish compassion. And this is when we might get caught in not-so-helpful patterns of trying to help everyone with everything all the time, which is actually more of a form of enabling or sometimes it gets into codependency, which is harmful to the other person but also to we ourselves. So again, the wisdom piece of compassion makes sure that we include ourselves in whatever situation that we're getting involved in. And so wisdom helps us to know when to say no and when to say yes. But the point of this training is not to make us somehow immune from suffering. It's something of a paradox, but it's actually to make us more vulnerable to it. Because unless we can open to the 10,000 sorrows as well as the 10,000 joys, we won't be able to feel the entire range of our experience. And researchers like Brene Brown, who some of you know, I've spoken of her before, have found this link between the people who were happiest in all of her studies were the ones who were able to open to suffering as well as happiness. Conversely, the people who were most closed down to suffering also were not able to experience joy when it came. So she found a very strong link between vulnerability and happiness, which again might seem counterintuitive. But one of the aspects of... um, Training that supports our ability to practice compassion is the practice of listening. Listening deeply to our own hearts and minds as well as to the people who we're with. So I think of compassion as a practice of tuning in or attunement. And in the later Buddhist tradition, uh, some of you may know of Kuan Yin, who's the archetype of compassion. And it's said that she listens as if she had ears on every cell of her body, which is a pretty striking image. And often she's shown sitting in a a position like this, where half of her body is in a meditation posture and the other half is poised, ready to spring into action. So she really embodies this balance between stillness and receptivity and engagement and action. And it's through listening that she knows an appropriate response. So part of this balance that I've been emphasizing is 
With wisdom, we also need to include ourselves in any compassion that we're offering to others. And for many people, somehow in mainstream society these days, it's self-compassion that is the hardest by a long way. And sometimes, um, in fact, usually when I suggest to people that they practice self-compassion, there's often a look sometimes of blankness, like this is something that hadn't even occurred to the person, or almost horror, actual recoil, because again, we have so much deep societal and individual conditioning that puts ourselves last, that we put all our attention anywhere else rather than connect to our own pain, distress and suffering. And just to get a sense of how universal this is, I was reading a psychologist who's been working in the field of self-compassion and he says, commonly for high shame and self-critical people, particularly those from harsh backgrounds, the beginning of the experience of warmth and kindness can ignite considerable sadness and grief. Self-kindness, too, can be viewed with suspicion as being soft, self-indulgent, or not deserved. This usually indicates a fear of developing compassion, of self-compassion, and more exploration might reveal that the individual is afraid that if they give up self-criticism, they will become lazy, unpleasant, or unlovable, and some believe that they will be punished for self-compassion by paying for it later or having it taken away. So just he's naming, I think, some very common patterns that people encounter when they try to orient towards this quality of self-compassion. And I think I may have shared the example of a young woman that I was working with a few years ago. Uh, she was a, a friend as well as an occasional student. And one day I was just chatting with her and I mentioned that I'd been reading something about self-compassion. And I just saw her freeze. And I could tell she was having some sort of inner, pretty intense reactions. So had to do a bit of work with her to help her sort of get restabilized. And then a couple of weeks later we were talking and she said that the idea of self-compassion had been so horrifying to her that she pretty much went into a trauma response. And she recognized that obviously this was something that, well not obviously, she decided that she wanted to work with self-compassion because she realized that something was amiss there and so we started talking about ways to develop it and the conventional way of doing it is by reciting phrases but she said for her the stumbling block was that she couldn't find any phrases that made sense to her that felt authentic because usually the phrases are things like I, I care for you and I'm aware of your pain and so on and so the two of us worked together to see if we could find some phrases that made sense for her, that she could feel authentic in reciting. And after a bit of back and forth, what we came up with sounded something like, may I be willing at some point in the future to explore the possibility 
of moving towards inclining to some degree in the direction of having some self-compassion. So it was sort of like way, way out here at arm's length. But even that was something. And she made a determination that she would recite those phrases three times every morning before she got out of bed. And it's a start. You know, we say start where you are, and that was what was true for her. And you also don't have to use phrases at all. You know, this can be a very creative and imaginative practice. So just to encourage you to explore whatever works for you in whatever way is um, applicable or makes sense. So one of the challenges, I think, when we're in pain is that what often happens is our whole world collapses and gets small and we sort of get locked in our own, um, not self-interest, but we lose perspective. We lose our sense of connection with others because we're so um, inward looking in our own distress. And so again, we can use the wisdom when we recognize that closing down to try to open up and to reconnect with the truth of the universality of suffering and that we are not alone. Nothing is personal and unique to us. So I sometimes share this not very elegant example of um, practicing with us on retreat I was on retreat at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts a few years ago for a month and, no, two months. And I had to take, um, I'd been prescribed three very potent antibiotics for a condition that I'd had for a long time. And I had to take them for the first 10 days of this retreat. And I'd been told that they could create quite intense nausea, but I don't normally have a um, sensitive stomach so I thought oh, I'll be fine but from the minute I woke up in the morning until the minute I went to bed at night I just felt like I was on the verge of vomiting to such an extent that when I went for the meetings with the teacher I was scared to open my mouth because <laughs> I wasn't sure what might come out and there were a few times when I did actually throw up and so everywhere I went, wherever I was sitting, I'd be just, where's the door? Where's the toilet? Is there a bucket? You know, it was just my whole world became me and my stomach. And after sort of three days of this, it was feeling pretty claustrophobic. But I finally remembered this idea of opening up to, you're not the only one who's going through this right now. So I started to try to practice compassion for myself with the nausea, but also all the pregnant women in the world who had morning sickness and all the sailors out at sea in a storm who were experiencing seasickness and all the people going through chemotherapy who were probably finding it difficult to eat and even people with hangovers, you know, <laughs> wishing they'd never done whatever they'd done. And I started to think of all the millions of people all around the world who in that very moment were vomiting. And I imagined us all vomiting together in unison <laughs> as I offered this compassion. And I was amazed how just that imaginative process 
brought some real lightness and a sense of connection. So as I... Yes, because it eased my suffering because it wasn't so tightly just me, mine, I feel terrible, this is awful. It was like, yeah, me and however many million. There was somehow that sort of opened up the space and I didn't feel so alone in it. So not a very elegant example, but just a sense that whatever we have going on for us at any time, you can be pretty sure there will probably be millions of people who are experiencing loneliness or depression or anxiety or abandonment or struggles with substance issues or whatever it might be. So, just really giving a, a pretty brief overview of this terrain uh, as a framing for how our practice develops both of these wings simultaneously, but also how when somebody has really worked this practice on a deep level, wisdom and compassion are the natural expressions of how they manifest in the world. So these two are both the practices that we undertake but also the expression, the fruits of the practice as it deepens and ripens. So that's probably plenty to be going on with. I just wish that we might all keep developing these two wings of wisdom and compassion so that they benefit not only we ourselves, but everyone that we come into contact with. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.